All right, River West Church, great to be with you this morning in your homes, with your families, whoever's gathered around there together with you. I know some of you have pulled together with other River Westers for worship this morning. We approve of that. That's wonderful. And it's just so good to be together. And I'm really excited to get back into our study in the book of Daniel. So if you would now grab your Bible and open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I just want to take a really brief moment to express my gratitude for your generosity over these last few months. The giving has been astounding. The giving has been down a little bit because we're not gathering, obviously, here on Sunday mornings. But the reality is the number of you who have converted to online giving or sending in giving in the mail has just been astounding. And what that's done is it's allowed our church to respond with generosity. So we're continuing to be generous to some of our ministry partnerships. We've been able to be generous to some other churches that we partner with, smaller churches who are really at risk right now, some churches that serve communities in our city that have been hit really hard by all this. And so thank you for that. Continue, please, to give generously, and let's see what God will do. But I'm excited today to get back into Daniel. And so turn there now. When we lost, last saw Daniel, things were actually going pretty well for him. Daniel was experiencing quite a bit of success in Babylon, other than the fact that he was a prisoner of war and a eunuch. Uh, did I tell you that in week one? Scholars universally agree that Daniel and his friends were turned into eunuchs by the Babylonians. That would have been part of being in the king's court. And so, guys, just a real quick word to the fellows out there. We've got a eunuch prisoner of war whose diet is primarily vegetables, all right? So anytime you're tempted to complain about your life, just think, it could be worse. I could be Daniel, all right? But other than that, things are going pretty well for Daniel and his friends. They are the top of the class. They're better in appearance than any of the other uh, people in the king's court Daniel, the book of Daniel told us they were 10 times better than all the other magicians and enchanters. They were at the very top. And the reader might be tempted to think, well, hey, life is pretty good in Babylon. We've got it pretty good here, actually. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. And what we're going to discover this morning in our story is that for Daniel and his friends, the bottom is about to fall out. It is about to get really dark, really twisted, really fast. We look at the story with me, Daniel chapter 2. Our text today is verses 1 through 30, and I'm going to work through the whole passage and draw out some things, and at the end, I'll, I'll share some lessons with you, but we're not going to be able to understand the parts without seeing the whole, so we'll do the whole passage together but I do want to give you right now, before we start reading, I want to give you the interpretive key to this entire passage. If you get this, this repeated concept that gets repeated throughout the whole thing, you'll understand the meaning of the entire chapter 2 of Daniel. It's, it's a word or a cluster of words, and they get repeated so many times in the passage that it almost seems like overkill, but the narrator is trying to drive home a point. This is what I'm talking about. Look for these words as I'm reading. The words are reveal, 
make known and show the interpretation. You're going to see these again and again and again. Here's what happened. Daniel 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Talk about a tough performance review. That's like the job review from hell, right? This year, we're not going to use demotions. If you don't perform well, we're going to burn down your house and tear off your arms. So anyway, if you're complaining about your boss right now, it could be worse, right? This is dark. And actually, Nebuchadnezzar did this stuff all the time. He had the power to do it. He meant what he was saying. Historians have recorded that he did this kind of stuff constantly. So this is real, folks. And there's something going on here that we miss. It's really interesting. We miss it in our English translation. This passage makes a switch right in the middle of verse 4. If you look at verse 4, it makes a switch from the language of the Hebrews to the language of the Babylonians. It's very fascinating. And for the original audience, it would have been very palpable We go from Hebrew, and suddenly, right in the middle of verse 4, when it says, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, the text switches to Aramaic, the language of the Babylonians, and it stays in Aramaic all the way through the end of chapter 7. And the reader's thinking, what's happening here? Here's what's happening. If you wanted to write a letter to a group of people who had been conquered by a foreign nation and you wanted to tell their story to them. And if you wanted to tell that story with dramatic effect, you would switch to the language of the conquering nation right at the point in the story where things get the most twisted and the most dark. And this is that moment we switch to a foreign language, a dark Aramaic. It's as if the narrator is saying, hey, folks, we're in Babylon now, and there's a dark underbelly to Babylon. We keep reading. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show 
its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the reader's thinking, why this back and forth? What's going on? Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying, I know that you guys are trying to trick me. And I know that if I tell you the contents of my dreams that I've been haunted with, you'll make up some interpretation. And there's no way for me to know whether you have any access whatsoever to ultimate truth or reality. So for me to know that your interpretation is correct, here's what I'm demanding from you. I don't want you to just tell me the interpretation of my dream. I want you to prove that you actually know the contents of my dream. And that is a whole different level of insight and wisdom and understanding. Amazing. And they can't do it. And they know it. Look what they say next. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and they said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. They're like, this is unheard of. No king has ever asked anything like this before. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods. Look at this. No one can show this to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't it be amazing if God became flesh and dwelt among us? That's a novel idea, right? That would solve all of our problems, but it's never going to happen because the gods, lowercase g, they don't dwell with flesh, but there is a God who has the power and the wisdom and the plan to do something like that. Or I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Look what happens next. Verse 12, the king gets really angry. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. We underline those words prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. So Daniel and his friends were not here for this original interaction with the king and the Chaldeans and the sorcerers. Daniel wasn't there. Daniel's just learning about this. And he's thinking, why is this so urgent? So Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, verse 15, verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And folks, this is a kid from the youth group. Remember that? Look at the faith, the radical faith. He sets up an appointment with Nebuchadnezzar to give Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of his dream before he has been given the interpretation of the dream. What faith. And he's 17 or 18 years old. Amazing. And did you see those words, prudence and discretion? I'm going to talk about those more in just a minute, but I just want to pause for a second and have you hover over those. There's a reason why we get 
two words, not just one, even though they sort of describe the same kind of a thing. Both those words matter. That first word is about what's happening in your head. Prudence. It's a head thing, a mental thing to be prudent. But discretion is what happens with your feet and your hands and your life. Discretion is how you behave in the world. And what what the narrator is saying is Daniel needed both to survive Babylon. Freaking out never helps. The last thing the world needs right now is Christians who will freak out. Amen. We don't need any Christians freaking out right now. We need Christians who have composure, who have prudence and discretion. And here we have an 18-year-old kid. How did he become like this? Oh, we're going to find out in just a moment. But let's keep reading. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Isn't that interesting? They use their Hebrew names with each other. They always talk to each other using their Hebrew names. Their names have been changed by Babylon to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when they talk to each other, they don't let Babylon tell them who their identity is. They know who they are when they're together in community. Now, later on in chapter three, when when these three get thrown into the furnace, they're called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here, no, this is their Hebrew identity. It's, It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Daniel got home and he gathered his community, his his church brothers, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I love this. I love this. The crisis hits. And what does Daniel do? He goes home, he gets his community together, and they pray and they worship. And folks, let me tell you something. When the crisis hit, Daniel already had community. This is so critical. The worst thing that could happen to somebody is the crisis hits and you don't have any community. Daniel had community. This was a prayer meeting that these guys had had together probably dozens and dozens of times so that when the crisis hit, Daniel knew immediately where to go. He knew what to do. He gathered his buddies in faith and he said, will you lock arms with me? And friends, if there's one thing the coronavirus crisis has revealed for way too many Christians is that so many folks don't have community. The crisis hit and they realized, I'm alone. I'm alone. In our own church reopen in phase one, we're, we're going to have brothers and sisters of River West begin to gather together. And there are some who have been a part of our church body who have no community. How heartbreaking. How much I want you. It's incumbent upon you to reach out to those who, when this crisis hit, they realized, I'm isolated. I'm alone. I don't have community. But not Daniel. He had community when the crisis hit. And he went home. And they prayed, and then look at this. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, and now if you look at your Bible, you'll notice that the next four verses are given to us as a poem. All right, this is like a psalm. I had a professor in seminary who said, anytime you get to a poem in the Bible, 
That's where all the heavy-duty theology is. He called it HDT, heavy-duty theology. Anytime there's a psalm or a poem in the middle of prose, that's where you're going to see the really good, juicy theology. And that's what we get here. Daniel answered, and he praised God. And he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Remember week one, I told you God is in control of the people who think they're in control. God is sovereign. That's not my idea. It comes from the book of, it comes from the mouth of Daniel as he's praising God. This God, he, he removes kings. He sets up kings, presidents, governors, politicians, CEOs, the people who think they're running the world. God can remove them in an instant and replace them with someone else. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So beautiful. So what does Daniel do? Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no. Pause for dramatic effect. The king says, can you tell me the dream? And can you tell me the interpretation? And Daniel basically says, nope. No wise men, no enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And I imagine Nebuchadnezzar was saying, are you nuts? Why are you here then if you don't even know my matter? But Daniel, look what Daniel says next. He says, I can't do it. No wise men, no astrologer, no enchanter, no Chaldean. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and I just happen to know him. That's all. I just happen to know him. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What a story. So dramatic. And the thing about it is we haven't even learned yet what the dream is. You're going to have to come back next Sunday to to see that. But what I want to do this morning, this is so critical, is I want to now draw out for you the three most important 
ideas from this first 30 verses. These are so critical. Just three, three ideas, three things. They all begin with the phrase, don't miss. And here's, here's number one. I'm a man of faith. It's going to appear in just a second right there. Okay. Here's the first lesson. Don't miss the true nature of Babylon. Don't miss it. Don't miss what's really going on underneath the surface. See past the opulence, see past the wealth, see past the veneer of luxury. Oh, Babylon looks so luxurious. Don't be duped. Look beneath the surface. Because when you look beneath the surface, what you're going to see is that Babylon is twisted and Babylon can be dark. And you say, how could I possibly miss what's really going on in Babylon? Every time I, Pastor, how, how could I miss it? Every time I turn on my newsfeed, okay, I'm confronted with how twisted my world is. Every time I open the news, there's, there's another death count of coronavirus. Every time I turn on the news, there's another political scandal. Every time I turn on the news, there's another tragic, horrible, racist murder that happens. Oh, friends, this week our country was shocked and rattled by the disturbing images of George Floyd, an innocent man with a knee on his neck for five minutes, crying out, I can't breathe. Here he was, a, a, an image bearer, created in the image of God, created by a God who loved him with unique value, endowed with brown skin and valuable to his creator and his life was sensibly taken from him. And across the country, people cried out, this is wrong. This is wicked. And Christians cried out, and we should, we should be feeling righteous anger over injustice like this. It's right and it's good. And so you say, every time I turn on the news, I, I, I'm confronted with the reality of Babylon. But here's the thing, that's not Babylon. That's just life in a broken world. That's just life in a world that's wrecked by sin. But when the Bible uses the metaphor of Babylon, it's talking about something different. It's referring to something that's much more subtle. It's hidden. Babylon refers to a spiritual system. And it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. You remember Genesis chapter 11 when men gathered in a plain and they decided let's build an opulent city and let's make a name for ourselves. Men gathered and said, let's build and let's do it without God. We don't need the glory of God. We can create a counterfeit system. And what did they build in that plain? They built Babel. This is what Babel is. Babylon represents a counterfeit, an alternative. It's a spiritual system, and it often is hiding and influencing at the level of culture and society and ideas. Babylon is that system that's influencing what you see in the entertainment industry. Babylon is there very subtly 
influencing the curriculum in universities and colleges. Babylon is there influencing the algorithms that determine what comes to your social media feed. Babylon is there hiding, influencing in that room of editors who decide what stories get told in the news and what stories get snuffed and subdued and ignored. You say, the news is just the news. Yeah, right. The news is predetermined. What are we going to tell and what are we going to ignore? And hiding back there often is a spiritual system that refuses to acknowledge that there is a creator God. And the narrator is saying, don't be duped. Don't be ignorant. You need to see what's really going on underneath the surface. Yes, it's luxurious. It's opulent. The food is richer in Babylon. The wine is better aged. The internet's always faster in Babylon. But the longer you look, you see fear and futility and helplessness and and brutality. Just think about it. We have this king. He's the most powerful person in the whole world. He's literally on top of the world. He's the wealthiest, most powerful. He's conquered Egypt, Assyria, Syria, Jerusalem. All of the major nations are serving him. He's on top of the world. And all God has to do to take him to his knees is flick one tiny little dream and it rattles him to his core, and he's shivering in his PJs. (laughs) He's a walking paradox of power and powerlessness. And you say, well, that's just Nebuchadnezzar. Just Nebuchadnezzar was afraid. No, no, no. Fear, that underlying fear, that's that's a hallmark of Babylon. Because it's the result of this underlying worldview that says, this is all we have. This is it, folks. This is the best it's ever going to be, so you better cling to what you've got now. And hiding underneath that is this deep fear, but also futility. I love this moment. Look at your Bible at verses 10 and 11. There's this moment where even the pagan astrologers and magicians, they admit our entire vocation is a sham. We don't have any access to any kind of insight or truth, ultimate truth, or an interpretation of what's happening in our world. It's all a big myth. And here, Nebuchadnezzar has gathered together the cream of the crop. These are the brightest, most highly educated. These guys have PhDs from the University of Babylon in dream interpretation with a minor in sorcery. They're the the best of the best. And there they come, they gather together, and they admit We have got nothing. The whole thing is futile. And the narrator is saying, that is what's really going on under the surface in Babylon. Don't miss it. It's a counterfeit. And let me tell you something, River West. Counterfeit wisdom and spirituality will not work when you need it the most. It will let you down. It will fail you. It's futile. So the narrator says, number one, don't miss that. Don't miss what's really going on in Babylon. But here's the second kind of lesson. Don't miss the true explanation for Daniel's composure. This is amazing because, again, we get caught off guard by how young Daniel was. He's, he's a teenager, and, and yet we see this faith, and, and we see his prudence and his discretion, and we're thinking, how could a kid that young 
be like this. And, and, and we're tempted to think he's so unflappable and, and, he's, and he's so composed. We're tempted to lift him up and, and make him our hero and even worship him and, and to turn an entire sermon into, here's what you need to do to imitate Daniel. And lots of pastors have preached sermons like that from this passage. But what I want to show you is it's very obvious from the text that that is not what our narrator's doing here. He's saying this is not about Daniel at all. Did you notice, look back at your Bible at verses 17 through 23. It's really interesting how the narrator will rush through some things, like all the things that Daniel's doing, and then he'll slow down to show you all the things that God is doing. Isn't that interesting? Just look back at verse 17. He's rushing. He rushes to report the danger. When Daniel reports the danger to his friends, that's rushed, verse 17. He rushes to talk about how Daniel urges his friends and they pray really quick. He rushes when he says Daniel that God revealed the dream to Daniel. That's a big moment. You'd think he would take a lot of time with that moment, but that's not the point. And then we get to this place where suddenly the narrator slows down. He takes his time. He says, don't miss this. This is the most important thing. This psalm of praise. Our our narrator says, we're not going to rush past this because this is the reason for Daniel's composure. He's not in a hurry anymore. He says, don't rush off. Let's take our time to hear how God is praise. Daniel's praise in verses 20 to 23, they're not just the theological center of the chapter, and they are that. The praise is the real reason for Daniel's composure. I was, I was meditating on it this week, and one of the things I noticed is that, and you could go in and discover this yourself, every sentence, every verse in that praise is lifted from the book of Psalms. This is interesting. Psalm 139 is all over this. Psalm 72, Psalm 75. It's as if Daniel had spent his life praising and glorifying God with the Psalms. That was like the oxygen that Daniel breathed. He would just glorify God so that he gets to this moment where he wants to praise God. And this Psalm pours out of his heart. And you go, why was Daniel so composed? Not because of Daniel, but because Daniel spent his life glorifying God. And that made him composed. That's what worship does. It creates composed Christians. Amazing. You say you want to become, you want to cultivate composure in your life. Here's what you don't do. You don't turn inward and say, I've got to do, I have to do this on my own. I have to become composed. That will never work. You say, you want to become composed, a Christian who's composed? Spend your life breathing the oxygen of praising God and giving glory to God constantly in your life. And you'll become composed in Babylon. I heard a great story this week. It's a story about the Civil War. It's a story about two officers who met during the Civil War. Their, their camp had come under attack, and it was chaotic. 
and soldiers were running around frantic with their heads chopped off. Enemy fire was flying overhead. Cannon fire was coming into the camp, landing at people's feet. People are panicking. People are freaking out, except for these two officers who had never met before. And here they come walking through the camp with fire, enemy fire flying overhead, and they're standing upright and they're composed and they walk towards each other and they have this moment where they make eye contact and they probably did the guy greeting the, hey, that's it, we're, we're, we're low communicators, okay? They, they greeted each other and then they walked past each other and then they both sort of realized what had just happened and, and they turn back around and they're looking at each other and one of the, one of the uh, soldiers, one of the officers says to the other officer, what is the chief end of man? And the other officer says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the first officer says, I knew it. A, Westminster, a Westminster catechism man. Eat your heart out, Presbyterians. All right. But what's the point? The point is when you spend your life glorifying God and praising God, it gives you composure. And we know that's the point of the story because it literally rolls off of Daniel's mouth when he's before Nebuchadnezzar. Did you notice this? He comes before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, do you know the interpretation of my dream? And you know what Daniel could have said? He could have said, yes, I do. Because technically that was the right answer. He had the interpretation. But what Daniel does is so astounding. Daniel refuses to take credit. In fact, just the opposite. Daniel insists on giving glory where glory is due. I love that humility. Look at verse 30. He says, as for me, this mystery, it has been revealed to me, but look, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any other of the living. I'm just a human being. I'm just like you. I'm just like the other astrologers. I'm just a human being. Why has this happened? Why have I been chosen? Because it's so that your, the, the interpretation may be known to you, King. God has a word for you and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel says, this is not about me. This is about God. And that leads me to my third and final lesson today. And oh, friends, how I hope you hear this. So don't miss what's really going on in Babylon. Don't miss the real explanation for Daniel's composure. But here's the last one, and it's the most important one. Everything else has been building to this moment. Don't miss the hidden movement of God in Babylon. Don't miss what God is doing. Don't miss God's activity. It could be easy to miss. But it's, it's impossible to miss in this story because we're tracing that theme all the way throughout, right? We've got over and over again this idea of 
interpretations needed. Someone needs to reveal. Someone needs to make known. The Babylonians, there's futility there. They have no idea what this all means. And then here comes this slave, this Jewish slave, and suddenly he has the interpretation, and it's building and building. The drama is building, and finally you get to this critical, dramatic moment in the throne room where Daniel says, this whole time, Nebuchadnezzar, God has been at work. God is the one who's acting. God is the one who has a purpose. God is the one who's on the move. God is the one who sent you this dream. And why? Why is God doing this? Because God is seeking always to make himself known in Babylon. This is the heart of God. This is the mission of God. Not just in the time of Daniel, but throughout every age. God is a God who reveals himself. It's his heart. You say, why is, why is God seeking an appointment with the king of Babylon? Because he loves the king of Babylon. He loves him. He, why is he sending him a dream? Is he sending him a dream to haunt him, to knock him down a few knocks on the pedestal? Did Nebuchadnezzar get too big for his britches? Is God threatened by his power? No, God's not threatened by Nebuchadnezzar. He loves Nebuchadnezzar. He flicked that dream into Nebuchadnezzar's mind because he wanted to save Nebuchadnezzar. And friends, we need to never forget this. This is who God is. God never confuses the system of Babylon, which is twisted and wicked, with the victims in Babylon. Never conflate those. They're different. The people trapped in the system are God's image bearers, and he loves them, and he's after their hearts, and he's trying to reveal himself. How do you get a missionary into the king of Babylon? You send him a dream. And by the way, this is happening all over the world where missionaries cannot go. You say, how is God working there? What about those people who haven't heard about Jesus? How do you know they haven't heard about Jesus? God sends people dreams about the risen Lord Jesus all the time. We hear the stories constantly. God is at work in our world, folks. This is how he reached Nebuchadnezzar. And so you say, well, this is great, Pastor, but what does it have to do with me? Where do I fit into all this? Well, just one final thought I want to share with you. You see, in Babylon, God uses his spirit-filled ambassadors to bring his revealed truth. He uses people. Yes, God sent Nebuchadnezzar the dream, but then what did he do? He sent an interpreter. He sent Daniel, just a, just a human, no different than you or I, of flesh and bone. But he had given Daniel understanding and all visions and dreams. Remember that from last week, Eric's message? At the time, see, that didn't seem relevant, but now suddenly the reader's going, ah, now I understand why God would specially endow Daniel with this kind of wisdom. Why? Because of this moment, he loves Nebuchadnezzar. He's after Nebuchadnezzar. He sends a dream, and then he sends one of his ambassadors. God took a conquered prisoner of war, and he stood that person confidently before the ruler who had ordered his own execution. And I want to ask you something. Does that sound familiar? 
because it should. God took a prisoner of war and he stood him before the king who had ordered his own execution. That's a little preview of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Christ would stand before the king who had ordered his execution and declare truth. And the the difference is that unlike Daniel, Jesus actually went all the way into execution in our place for our sins. Hallelujah. It's the gospel. And Daniel is the preview. Remember, we're right back to where we started week one, where I said the whole book of Daniel is about Jesus. It's not about Daniel. It's about Jesus. We're going to see Jesus over and over. And here it is again. Daniel is a type of Christ. And you say, okay, what does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. The New Testament says that because Christ died on a cross for your sins and rose again, you now have the spirit of Christ within you. You have the mind of Christ. You have access to all of the wisdom and the understanding of God, which he has hidden in Christ. Colossians 2.3, memorize that. Make that home base for you. The New Testament says you have that. You have, my friends, if you love Jesus, if you're serving Jesus, if you're following Jesus and you're surrendered to Jesus, you have from Jesus the interpretation from God that our world, our Babylon needs. And so I ask you, will you now go today? Right when we're done with this service, you have your marching orders. Go into the world, into Babylon with humility, with faith, with prudence and discretion, with your heart constantly glorifying God with praise and take with you that truth, that revealed truth of Christ, the interpretive key of all of history. Take it with you everywhere you go, everywhere that God sends you in Babylon. And I'm going to pray about that right now, and I'm going to pray for you. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, how we thank you for this incredible text, the truths that are there. It's astounding. The story is amazing, yes, but it's, it's not just a great story. It's littered with insight that we need, truth about the reality of Babylon. Help us to see God. Help us to be wise as a church family. May we see past the opulence of our own Babylon. And may we know those moments when that's the influence that is, that is ruling the day. And may we see the deeper reality of what's going on so we can contrast it, God, with who you are, with your truth, with your reality, with your worldview. And God, may we be people who are constantly bringing you glory through praise, through worship. May we never stop meeting together for worship, Lord, because it, as we worship you, we become people of composure, not, not by our own strength or merit, but by your grace and your Holy Spirit. And may we never forget, God, that you have an agenda in Babylon. You're at work. You have a purpose. You're moving. You're acting. And we're here as your humble ambassadors to play our part, to follow you, filled with the Spirit of Christ. How we thank you for that. And we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's worship.
together, folks.